there are so many problematic histories of architecture that if you don't tell the whole story, then you're really just telling propaganda. And I think the tide has really turned against that. Nobody really has time for propaganda anymore. It doesn't educate, it doesn't serve anybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Journey with Purpose. The next two episodes, we're going to explore two mid-century modern homes. Both homes challenged the very idea of what a house and a home should be. And both were designed by two very bad acting men. In today's episode, we're going to start with the Farnsworth House, which, while finished last, was designed first by Mies van der Rohe. And Philip Johnson saw it and copied it and made his own version of it. And you'll listen to that next episode. Both houses are owned and administered by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Today, we're speaking with Scott from the Dr. Edith Farnsworth House. Scott, welcome to the pod. Can you introduce yourself and give us some background on the house? This is Scott Mahaffey. I'm executive director and curator of the Edith Farnsworth House Historic Site, which is a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation located in Plano, Illinois. And I'm calling in from my home office in Flossmoor, Illinois. So the site is located along the banks of the Fox River. The Fox River begins up in Wisconsin and it connects to the Illinois River southeast of Farnsworth House. So we're actually located at a bend in the river and can look southwest down river. That's partly why Dr. Farnsworth bought the property. Okay, so what was there on the property before Dr. Farnsworth purchased it? And then, of course, if you go before Dr. Farnsworth, she buys the property as a little piece of the 1,200-acre Robert R. McCormick Chicago Tribune Experimental Farms. During the Depression, he hires a handful of staff writers to report to small farmers how to increase their crop yields, uh, how to diversify their crops, how to reduce soil erosion, planting fruiting hedgerows to attract more birds to reduce the insect populations. I mean, things that were considered innovative scientific agriculture at that time. But it was all motivated by the fact that he was a staunch Republican and hated FDR and the New Deal and was afraid that small farmers were going to go to the dark side and become Democrats. Then, of course, McCormick purchased these small farms to assemble this 1,200-acre estate from several small German farmers who had come there and dredged mill ponds. This is pre-railroad. They were using the river as transport. And all these mills and these towns are legacies of this German settlement era. And then before that, it's the Yankee land grab. And then before that, it's documented tribal land from several different tribes, Potawatomi, uh, Prairie Band Potawatomi being the last. It's just fascinating. It's a one-room house on 60 acres, which is an inholding within a 1,200-acre estate and then neighboring large family farms. So there's just a rich uh, history there. Scott, can you give us a little bit of overview of the Farnsworth House itself? It's been celebrated as one of three homes actually realized in the United States by Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who, of course, was the last director of the Bauhaus School in Germany before the Second World War, came to Chicago in 1938 to head the architecture program at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology. It was actually Armour Institute then, and he designed the campus master plan and several of the buildings as well. 
How about Mies? Can you give us a little bit of background on him? He started his own practice with his students to give them some world, some real world experience. And Farnsworth House was one of those projects during the uh, ensuing years from when he agreed to do the project until it was realized, of course, he opened his own office in Chicago. And that was a point of contention <laughs> because I think she thought she was getting student labor and there was no contract. And so in the end, he decided to sue her for design fees. And she, of course, countersued basically for malpractice because there were several problems with the house initially. But it's really, of course, Mies next to Louis Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright is one of kind of the big three famous architects in Chicago, but known for his work in Germany as well as the United States. And he was, of course, a towering figure in the history of the international style and modernism in general. There's a whole subset of modernism called Miesian modernism because he had so many acolytes who continued on. And then, of course, IIT has churned out generations of architects. And even to this day, Miesian thinking is prevalent in the curriculum. You just can't help but absorb it while you're a student there or a visitor. We got to talk about Mies. So he grew up in Germany. He came of age around the time of German nationalism. But I was surprised when I was doing this research that he was actually kind of a traditionalist and worked under barons. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Mies was a fascinating character. Of course, he grew up in a household um, in Aachen, Germany, where his brother, who was the eldest son, was going to inherit the business. So Mies really had to make his own way. He was a complicated character, as you say. He was raised in a devout household, so he was very interested in um, the history of religion. He was an avid reader. One of his early clients, of course, was a professor and introduced him to several fascinating books that really kind of changed his early thinking, also sent him to Italy. So at that point, he was really studying classicism as well. He was learning about classical rules, underlying architecture, which influenced, as a lot of scholars have written, influences his thinking about uh, spatial organization, about balance, asymmetrical and symmetrical balance, all of which is found in his later work. He didn't express it in a traditional way, but certainly classical underpinnings helped to find Miesian modernism, if you will. He, as you say, worked for barons. He was always very interested in architecture, even though he wasn't, he was apprenticed. He wasn't formally educated as an architect. He certainly became a renowned architect, even as a young man in Germany, but his style was very traditional. And we actually have a fascinating exhibition showing some of his early work in Berlin um, and elsewhere in Germany in our gallery right now. And he, at some point, he really determined that traditionalism was a dead-end street and that he was really jumping on the bandwagon and going to become a leader in this, you know, emerging modernist style, which he began collecting modern art when he had a little money in his pocket. And he was very influenced by Cubism, Fauvism, some of the emerging art trends, especially when he was surrounded by other creatives at the Bauhaus. So he's at the Bauhaus. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening around then? Part of his escape to America was to escape the Nazi oppressionism, but also a fresh start, 
there's a lot of correspondence with his wife and his family over the years, and and I'm not sure that he was cut out to be you know, father material, <laughs> husband material, and it was with an understanding, I think, with his wife that he would continue to support the family, but there were certainly better opportunities in the United States. In Chicago, David Adler was really one of the most fashionable architects in Chicago and successful, and he was an historicist through and through, knew every style and period of architecture. And ironically, it was he who suggested to John Hollibird that they get Mies for this position at the Armour Institute because they really wanted a forward-looking curriculum. So that's really what brought him to Chicago. So Mies is now on a boat to America, having fled Nazi Germany because apparently he doesn't like not being in charge of the Bauhaus, and he's fleeing his family. Can we turn to Dr. Farnsworth, please? Who was she? Dr. Farnsworth was also an intellect, fascinating individual. One of the things that I think is interesting about the two of them is they were both self-made, sort of self-actualized individuals. I mean, Mies comes to the United States, he really can't speak English. He really risked everything. Maybe he had no choice in coming to Chicago, coming to the U.S., really had to make his way. He was a quiet, thoughtful, introspective person. I think Dr. Farnsworth was very much the same way. She was the middle child. So I think there's a degree of having to prove yourself there. An intellect through and through fascinated from a very early age because she was playing the violin to learn about Italian history and culture lived in Italy three times in her life, initially went to Rome to study at the conservatory under a man, Mario Corti, who was one of the foremost concert violinists at that time. She was a little bit of an awkward person in a time that valued female beauty very highly. Her sister was the pretty one and maybe a little bit more socially gregarious. She determined that she wasn't good enough to be a concert violinist, and withdrew and did a little traveling around Europe, but on the way back met a famous Swedish uh, physician on board the ship who convinced her that she should study medicine. It was another subject she was always interested in. She was a very left-brain, right-brain person, and she had studied at the University of Chicago English literature, a little bit of ancient civilization, zoology, so she had a broad range of interests as well as classical violin. On the way back, she really gets the bug that she's not only going to become a physician, but a research physician. And she saw an opportunity, you know, curing illnesses. Kidney disease became her specialization. And she, through family connections, the Farnsworth were quite uh, wealthy. She was able to fund a research laboratory, a nephrology research laboratory at Northwestern Hospital. She was a very busy person. She was a full professor at Northwestern. She was on staff at Passive Memorial Hospital, which was part of Northwestern. And she also was a volunteer midwife on the south side of Chicago. And she, of course, wrote and translated poetry. Wow, that sounds like an amazingly busy life. I wanted to know more about Dr. Farnsworth, so I spoke to historian Nora Wendell, who has spent the last 10 years researching Dr. Farnsworth and has put on many shows about her and her life. Nora, welcome to the pod. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Nora Wendell. I am an associate professor of architecture at the University of New Mexico, the executive editor of the Journal of Architectural Education. 
I was fascinated by her as a subject because she contributed to the history of architecture. Of course, she was the client for Mies van der Rohe's uh, Farnsworth House, now known as the Edith Farnsworth House in Plano, Illinois, but also because she was kind of a character that transcended, I think, a contemporary idea of professionalization. She was a nephrologist, which means a kidney doctor. She was also a poet. She was a translator. And everything that she did, she did extraordinarily. She does sound extraordinary. Can you give us a little bit more context of Dr. Farnsworth and the world she lived in? So I think it's important to recognize that she was a sort of remarkable figure for her time in the 1950s. I think when she really came into her own as a doctor and began focusing primarily on her career, it was an unusual time for women to do that. She came through medical school at a time when only six women were allowed per year. So, you know, hundreds of people in a medical class six or women, and they were seen as sort of being granted a favor because they were such a burden, you know. So really problematic time, incredibly misogynist time, terrifying time for anybody who might be within or allied to the queer community, as you know, the era of McCarthyism, the Lavender Scare. So I became really intrigued by Dr. Farnsworth through these archives because she left a sort of narrative about herself that I found fascinating, her memoirs, which tell the story of her life. I think she saw herself as somebody who would be studied, but also because she sort of relentlessly decided that the house that she commissioned would would be her own. And I think that that's made her sort of viewed as a problematic figure in architectural history because she relentlessly decided to live in the house. She moved furniture into it that was not of Mises' design. She rejected his furniture. She rejected Mies ultimately when she countersued him. Okay, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. Here's Scott again from the Farnsworth house. Hey, Scott, can you share how Dr. Farnsworth began imagining her house? So during the war, when the men, most of the doctors were men at that time, went off to war, she writes in her memoirs that it was really left to the women to run the hospital. And just for relaxation, would spend time with a close friend. Sue, and they had a house on the Fox River out near Aurora, not too far from the site Edith purchased. And they took a drive on a Sunday and found this wonderful site, and one thing led to another. She had initially hired Keck and Keck, who were the go-to modernist architects in Chicago at that time, residential architects. For one reason or another, it didn't work out, and so she began researching other architects, kept coming across Mies van der Rohe. And through mutual friends, it was arranged to meet him at a dinner party. And one thing led to another. Of course, he agrees to take on the house. He really didn't have many commissions at that time other than these very utilitarian buildings at IIT. So he was excited to jump at the chance. And of course, many Mies scholars have shown the lineage of Farnsworth House. The idea began decades before. And so it was really an opportunity. And he really was fixated on this idea. I mean, if you look at the column spacing of the Farnsworth house, uh, it's the same that he uses at 860-880 Lakeshore Drive, just in multiple stories. Okay. For those who are interested, column spacing is just the distance between columns, which hold up the floors and the roof of the building. And Mies was obsessed with finding an optimal column bay, which a distance between columns, which was a recurring motif of his work. Okay. Back to Scott. It was a design-build project, Farnsworth House was. He couldn't find a contractor to uh, build the house to his specifications, including a 1 to 16th inch tolerance. The, the entire house was pre-assembled 
in uh, a warehouse on the far west side of Chicago so that everything was perfectly leveled, plumb, square. Then it was numbered, disassembled, hauled out to uh, Plano and reassembled. There's a little bit of hearsay here. Uh, and, and myth and legend around Farnsworth House. But one of the things that I think he is credited for was developing different classifications of welders. So the uh, tradespeople actually had to have a new categories for the kinds of welder that would do the kind of very fine fillet welding, grinding, and smoothing. Because if you look at Farnsworth House, it looks like it's held together with magnets. You can't see the welds. And that certainly was a level of craftsmanship that wasn't found in most welders in the 1940s. Scott, can you tell me a little bit more about the architect-client relationship? There are some persistent, if not well-sourced rumors that they were carrying on an affair, and that just feels like patriarchy, especially since there doesn't seem to be any evidence, except Mies was a womanizer. He abandoned his family in Germany, and he carried on multiple affairs while his wife and children were back in Germany. But it doesn't really seem like there is anything here to that rumor. So the two of them, yes, that was a very a close relationship and friendship in the beginning. Edith was waiting for an inheritance from one of her aunts, waiting for that estate to be settled. So they had a kind of a leisurely pace for the design. Mies, of course, didn't have an office. So in the beginning, he was working with students on this project. And several of the young architects who worked on Farnsworth House drawings over this, I think, five-year period from its inception till when they broke ground, became quite noteworthy architects over their own careers. So it's got a complex lineage or parentage. She really enjoyed the process. And this was, part, I think, part of the reason that they kind of became frenemies, if you will. (laughs) They were quite close. They had a lot of interests, a lot of common interests in philosophy, history of religions, history of world culture. Design was a totally new world for her. She was like a sponge, I think, throughout most of her life. It's said that she spoke seven languages, many of which she taught herself. I think she was every bit of Mises' intellectual match and then some. So, of course, the young GIs that came back and worked in the office at the war just assumed that the two of them had something more than, you know, a client-architect relationship. Well, that that just seems like hearsay, right? Is there anything else? Years later, of course, an, uh, somebody was interviewing his, her sister, Marion. This was after Edith's passing in 77, 1977, and said, because of the contentious lawsuit, don't you think it must be true that they had more than a client-architect relationship? And she said, well, you know, I, yes, I suppose that's possible. Well, of course, when your sister says that, then historians take that as truth. Historians are often a a lazy bunch and just will repeat what the last guy wrote. So that's really the basis of the rumor, that and, of course, the young guys in Mises' office who saw the two of them spending time together and just made the assumption. There's no truth in it that we know of. I mean, we've talked to Edith's friends and her nephew who just passed, and all of them say, no, I really don't think there's any way that they had a romantic relationship, but their friendship certainly had a turn at one point. What happened next? The project became more and more over budget. Mies wasn't terribly concerned about the budget. He knew she was from a wealthy family and that most likely she had the resources. And so the price tag kept going up and up. But of course, at some point, the process dragged on and on. And she just wanted to get into her house. 
So she takes the wardrobe away and the screen porch away and says, don't worry, I'll handle those. Just get this done. She had initially expressed concerns that Mises furniture, most of which was designed in the 1920s, now we're in the late 40s, didn't look current. It didn't look like something she wanted to live with. Well, Mises, of course, didn't want to take no for an answer and kept working on the furniture layouts and furniture designs. At some point, because the project was so far off schedule and over budget, she pulled the furniture out, too. That was her excuse. Okay, while it doesn't seem like there is any evidence of an affair, it more sounds like the client was just done with this overbearing dude trying to gain some sort of perfection in her house and ended the relationship and just wanted to live in her home. What happened next? By the end, Edith, well, I would say maybe spearheaded in some ways a smear campaign against Meese. She knew the editor of Better Homes and Gardens. There was a very... McCarthy era suspicion of European architects, especially Mies, who was anti-materialistic. And think of the time when American consumer culture was patriotism. And Mies is saying, why do you need all this stuff? <laughs> and Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, was the American favorite. And so he came out swinging against Mies too. One of the funny things that Wright did, I think in 1947, there was a Mies career retrospective at MoMA, the exhibition had been curated by Philip Johnson, who was often criticized at that time, called Philip Vander Johnson, because he was such a Mies fan and copied Mies so closely. But Franklin Wright did come to the opening and was overheard as having said much ado about almost nothing. But of course, Edith was quite impressed that Franklin Wright and other luminaries were there, and the center stage was the model of her house and the sketch, and so she really felt she had to go forward with it. At that point in 47, the lawsuit was really a turning point. Yeah, I would imagine the lawsuit was a turning point. Can you tell us how she was living in the home? She didn't regard the house as a monument to me. It was her weekend house. She wanted to be comfortable. And that, of course, was the point of irritation for me but also for Mises' acolytes who continued to climb the fence and take photographs and sketch the house. And she would become so irritated. And she didn't have a gun, but she had binoculars. And she would walk up to the window and point the binoculars right at these students, or she'd open the door and yell at them to get off her property. You know, because of the lawsuit and these sorts of actions, she was kind of relegated to the footnotes, you know a crazy spurned ex-lover who had never appreciated the house. And of course, that was just a mischaracterization. And we've conducted a lot of research in recent years and learned what a fascinating person she was, but also that she was integral to the design of the house until the lawsuit. She really hasn't been given due credit. She was really Mises, not only client, but patron, at a point when he really had no private commissions so in many ways, we can give Edith Farnsworth credit for this kind of turning point in the history of American modernism. Okay, so what's Mies doing around this time? You think about it, Mies really didn't have much work outside of the Armour Institute at the time. He took a commission. He had several projects that in the United States that had fallen through, so his hopes were dashed in many ways. He wanted to begin a new career, a new life, and Edith knew this and really became a close friend, confidant. And I think she, of course, 
wanted her own place or getaway. She had such a stressful career and just had so much, I think, romance involved, invested, imbued in this project from the beginning, much of which is in her memoirs. This house got so much attention. I mean, before it was, they've even broke ground. So her colleagues all knew that she was building this important thing. And so the pressure was on, the social pressure, the peer pressure was on to realize it. And Mies could care less about the schedule. It just had to be right. Every detail had to be right. She writes in her memoirs that she goes out to the site, as she often did with Mies, because he didn't drive. And he was sitting in a navy blue canvas director's chair in front of the house and has the workmen paraded each piece of travertine by him so that he could rate them into three categories. And she just thought it was so ridiculous and so dictatorial and so characteristic of Mies. And then she writes, by the end of the afternoon, he had forgotten which pile was which. They all kind of had. <laughs> she was just disgusted. The workmen would also complain to her, like, what an idealist not only Mies was, but the architects who worked for him, and they just really weren't respecting the budget and the schedule. So she really got an earful from them as well. So I think she became disillusioned at some point and just wanted to bring the project to an end. But there's no doubt that she was swept up very much in Mies's philosophies, in his story, in his trajectory, and really did see herself as the patron of Mises' American career at some point, not just the client for this important house. She wrote this essay for the MoMA exhibition in 1947. You sense that in every way, that she really had drank, had drunk the Kool-Aid, if you will. So at some point, Dr. Farnsworth is just sick and tired of this house. She doesn't want anything to do with it. So she sells the house to Peter Palumbo, who takes ownership of it. What we're finding is that the Peter Palumbo era, the second owner of the house, who's still with us, he's well into his 80s, but it's been a fascinating journey learning about that era, which really began in 1968 and ended with the sale of the property at auction in 2003. Dirk Lohan, Mises' grandson, tried to get him to buy it. So did other family members, you know, when Dr. Farnsworth retired and he wouldn't go near it. Plus, Mies was so urbane. I mean, he loved living behind what became Water Tower Place, and he was a city guy. He didn't want to live up in the country. He left the countryside when he left Aachen. There was just no romance there. It's always been a place of retreat, respite, refreshment, reinvigoration. And that was, of course, how Peter Palumbo used the property as well. When he purchased it from Dr. Farnsworth in 1968, it was really his American base. He eventually acquired another 1,200 acres, so not the same farms that McCormick had, but four other farms. Of course, Palumbo also had Le Corbusier's Maison Jules in Paris and Frank Lloyd Wright's house near Kentuck Knob, near Falling Water. So in 99, I think it was, he had the idea that he would incorporate all three as a for-profit house museum corporation. He's really a fascinating character and important to the history of the Farnsworth House because he restored it twice. Edith had really let it go starting in the 60s, and then, of course, she retired to Italy in 68. And so he restored it once in 72 to 74, working with Dirk Lohan, Mises' grandson. And then again in 96, 97, there were two devastating floods. The house really became a goldfish bowl in 96. It had five feet of water in the house, and then 
while it was under restoration in the spring of 97, three feet of water in the house. And that was originally his intention to sell the house as a house museum surrounded by a sculpture park to the state of Illinois. And they committed to buying it for $8 million. He had more than that invested in it, certainly. But uh, the state had a lot of financial problems in those years. And he opens the newspaper like three years later because they were dragging their feet and reads that they're not going to buy it. They didn't even contact his attorney to let them know they were pulling out of the deal. At that point, and he just pulled all the sculptures, most of which went to Kentuck Knob and then had Sotheby's auction the house. It was really through Landmarks, Illinois, that the house was saved. The trust didn't want it in a way because it didn't come with any kind of endowment. They agreed it should be preserved. Landmarks, Illinois, ended up with the preservation and conservation easement, but the property was held by the National Trust. Landmarks, Illinois, operated it for 10 years, and then the trust stepped in and assumed the operations beginning in 2013. So we've mentioned him a few times, but Philip Johnson does have a role here in the Farnsworth House, not only by including it in several very important MoMA exhibitions, but also as a somewhat collaborator, somewhat friend, frenemy of Mies. And while we're splitting up the episode to make an already messy story legible, can you tell us a little bit about Mies and Johnson and their relationship together? Well, of course, he designed Philip Johnson's New York apartment in about 38, 39. And Philip Johnson, his father had been the attorney for Alcoa Aluminum. He had independent wealth. He goes to visit Mies in the Bauhaus during the last years of the Bauhaus before the war. Actually, there, the war was happening. He talks about driving through Poland and seeing the fireplace, a big, massive brick fireplace standing from a burned house. And that became his inspiration for his brick cylinder that is found in the Philip Johnson Glass House, both properties of which became National Trust historic sites. Philip Johnson, they called him Vander Johnson because he was such a fan of Meese and a promoter of Meese, copier of Meese, certainly. He completes the Glass House in 47, and that's when they're breaking ground for Farnsworth House because mostly Edith didn't have the money. She was waiting for the inheritance from her aunt to really feel confident that she could start construction. And money really wasn't an object for Philip, so (laughs) he just went ahead and did it. So I'd love to know how the National Trust goes about interpreting a site. In the next episode, we'll be speaking about Philip Johnson and his Nazi and fascist ties. And while Mies abandoned Nazi Germany and his wife and family, it seemed more so because he didn't control the Bauhaus. But it does seem like this site and the house is much bigger than just one building and a man. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's very important to us. In 2018, we launched a series of two-year interpretive programs. So 2018-2019, it was Mies and Bauhaus 100. And our intention was, of course, to connect Farnsworth House and Mises' American career with his you know, German career, his European career, and also to show that Mies designed furniture and decorative objects and that he worked closely with Lily Reich and other collaborators. It wasn't uh, an island. He wasn't always working as a solo great architect. You know, He was also, of course, very interested in graphic design and in the arts scene in general, including performance arts. So when you look at some of the 
magazine covers that he designed and early things that we really don't even consider him doing as a young man. Plus, of course, looking at the progression of his architecture from this kind of early neoclassical and traditional styles into early modernism. So it really makes him much more of an interesting person, I think. Edith, same way, when we really start studying her life and her trajectory and all of the people she met and interests that she pursued along the way, her poetry is very insightful. We start to see her interests, her passions, her musings reflected in her poetry, most of which is unpublished. The idea of a period of significance at the National Park Service is very important, not at the National Trust. The National Trust manages its 28 historic sites, its palimpsests. All the eras of history, including the current, are very important, and they're all interpreted and preserved, maintained. Certainly, there are a couple National Trust sites where a period of significance is important, especially the few presidents' homes that are part of the National Trust portfolio rather than the National Park Service, most of the presidents have National Park Service sites. But the National Trust's motto is to tell the full American story. And so this is really important at Farnsworth, where people, since really the beginning, have focused on Mies van der Rohe, the architect, and ignored all the other history, including the site, which is so rich in history. And Dr. Farnsworth is aware of this. And if the site itself had not had so much lure, Farnsworth House never would have been built. So it's really this kind of relationship between architecture and nature and nature-inspiring design and living with nature in a very cultured way. That's part of the legacy. It's always been a place of retreat, respite, refreshment, reinvigoration. So we spoke a little bit about how the trust is interpreting the sites, but can you help us situate these sites into a longer, larger history and legacy? Something that we're doing with the interpretation of the house that has maybe surprised some people, not younger people, they love it, but I think older folks who have supported the trust in a very sort of DAR mode, they're a little bit surprised by this kind of social history that the trust is focusing on lately because we are so committed to diversity and, as I say, telling untold stories. That's an interesting question. I think in terms of like the enduring legacy of these great architects, it continues to be interpreted and reinterpreted all the time. And we're actually living in a very interesting time period, I think, where we've had this mid-century modern revival has gone on for 30 years now, and it's just starting to wane, and we're seeing a lot of interest now in historicist styles, especially in residential design. But we're starting to see, I think, we're not calling it postmodernism, of course. That was a distinct era. But we now call classic modern era buildings modernist. So they're not considered modern anymore in terms of contemporary. Um, They are modernist. There's an historic category for them as well. But there's also, of course, this, this eclecticism, right? in this time we're living in. And so uh, anything goes if it's done well, in a way, if it's considered interesting. And Mies is famous as saying, I'd rather be good than interesting. With each passing generation, the Mies chapter within the history of American architecture gets smaller and smaller. (laughs) 
So there, that's a that poses a challenge both to the National Trust to remain relevant and resonant for future generations. And I think the idea of what an historic site is, of course, is changing as well. What does the future hold? How will historic sites continue to be important to younger generations? And that's that's that answer isn't fully written. I see a lot of experimentation happening at National Trust and at other historic sites. A lot of community engagement, a lot of audience engagement, allowing um, creatives who are non-architects to utilize the space, reinterpret the space, to create new work. Arts are very important for the vibrancy of historic sites and museums in general, creating new meanings, calling attention to things that other people see that we don't necessarily see. That keeps people coming back, keeps people talking about the place. Here's Nora Wendell again. So Nora, how should we be telling the Farnsworth House story? I think you tell the whole story. I think you tell it all. I think you you make it all visible. You make it all apparent. I think that's the only way. I think you have to tell the entire story. And maybe you tell it from multiple perspectives. And I think in terms of working with an institution devoted to preservation, I think the sooner those institutions, you know, and the National Trust is a great example. I mean, the National Trust has done a good job engaging people who really deeply know these histories. So I worked for two years with the National Trust, putting together the exhibition Edith Farnsworth Reconsidered, and we looked at so many facets of her identity and Mises' identity. And that was great. And I think I think the public can handle that. I think the public actually really wants to know the entire story. There are so many problematic histories of architecture that if if you don't tell the whole story, then you're really just telling propaganda. And I think the tide has really turned against that. Nobody really has time for propaganda anymore. It doesn't educate. It doesn't serve anybody. So the more complete the history is, the better. And I think that one of the things that really strikes me is that history is is the project of making a story. And so if you make that story in a certain way, you try to omit things that are not pleasant or, or actually despicable, but I think we're past the moment of sort of linear history, so we're in a moment of, of what I think of as histories as constellations, that you have to tell all of the points of this. It's more complex. It's not going to be a linear narrative with the plot line. And I think, in many ways, the, the Farnsworth House for me is always a sort of cornerstone in thinking that way, right? When we told the Farnsworth House history linearly, we made tropes out of Edith Farnsworth and tropes out of Mies and tropes out of the house. It became a very kind of silly almost rom-com scenario. It makes absolutely no sense. It's like the plot for a really bad movie, right? But when you tell a more complete history that's real, you get away from the sort of characterizing of people and you tell the story of these people as human beings who were complicated, made terrible decisions, had very problematic worldviews, and also made these structures. And so if you tell that complete history, I think you get away from this polarizing idea about who made the decision or, or, or you know, who we should be paying attention to and, and think more completely and complexly about the past and its, and its implications in the present. I think that's why it's so important to tell the complete story as much as you can is that it's, it's a reminder that these evils don't actually go away. They continue to be repeated over and over and over until 
we can somehow learn our lesson or we can stand against people in positions of power who are perpetrating absolute horrors. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Nora. Thank you for helping us recenter this narrative away from just this iconoclastic dude in Meese to an actual person in Dr. Farnsworth. This is a fascinating story of both how you contextualize history, how you rewrite history, who owns history. It's super interesting and it's incredibly connected to the next episode. We're continuing to both reevaluate their place in the architectural history, but also how we tell that history. And so I wanna thank the National Trust for taking me and us on this journey of rethinking and reevaluating history. I think it's super important. History is alive and how we tell it is super exciting. Just a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast are not the views of any of our employers, but you know that, but we have to say it. This has been a really great episode. Go to jwp.news to find more podcast episodes. Listen to the next one around Philip Johnson, a truly bad mid-century man. And we'll see you on the internet and hope you are well. Good day.